Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the Book of Revelation, chapters 5 and 6. Well, we're nearing the end of Revelation chapter 5, all of which takes place in heaven, and I want to emphasize this because beginning in chapter 6, the scene will shift to planet Earth. Now, one of the fundamental principles that we need to keep up front in our minds regards that of the sealed scroll itself. That is, the meaning of the scroll that is sealed with seven seals is that what is written in it was long ago decided. Now, now by long ago, I'm speaking temporally. I'm speaking in terms of the way we measure time in our universe. And by that standard, what is going to be revealed in the sealed scroll was decided upon thousands, if not millions, of years ago, and then it was set on the cosmic shelf until the time was right. Now, of course, by heaven's standard, there's no such thing as time. Past, present, future, that has no meaning. So, it's not as though the spiritual creatures of heaven, including God himself, have been waiting in the sense that we would think of it. Therefore, we have to wrap our minds around the reality that everything that has happened in human history, from, from Adam through today to beyond to the end, this was known by God, if not fully planned and orchestrated by God. Another principle to remember is that while John is just now learning of the contents of the sealed scroll by means of visions, the carrying out of what was written has yet to happen on earth, although no doubt John expected it to occur shortly after his vision experience. So humanity has known since roughly 90 AD the skeletal blueprints of what's to come. And so the human race has no excuse when all the horror that was written begins to take place. We can't say, oh, but we didn't know. Now, when we read and study Revelation, we must always admit to ourselves that what we take from it will be imperfect. It will be incomplete because the bulk of it is unfulfilled prophecy. It's ever tempting for us as disciples, as students, as teachers, and especially for Bible commentators to sort of fill in the blanks, make speculations that often become inalterable doctrines. Now, I realize it can be frustrating as humans, especially as Christian humans, to not be able to find ready, solid answers to questions about our faith, about our holy book that we feel are important to us. But it's going to continue to be my position, my approach to teaching this apocalypse, that when something cannot be reasonably and firmly answered and backed up by Holy Scripture, we'll discuss the various possibilities, but we're not going to declare them as fact. In chapter 5, as the Lamb was that was slain, but is now alive, Yeshua, took the scroll from his father's right hand and he began to open the seals on the scroll. We found that three songs or three hymns were sung to him with the first one beginning in verse 9. 
And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered. At the cost of blood you ransomed for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them into a kingdom for God to rule. Kohanim, that is priests, to serve him and they will rule over the earth. Now this was called a new song because what was occurring had never happened before. The 24 elders singing this song had not done so in the past. This song reminds us of Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where we read, Now if you will pay careful attention to what I say and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be a kingdom of Kohanim, kingdom of priests for me, a nation set apart. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel. And now, indeed, believers have paid attention to what God told us, and we have become a kingdom of priests for him, as had always he had always intended. Let's move on now to Revelation 5, verse 11, and continue our study. Okay, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 1537. 1537. I'll take that back. 1538. 1538 is where we'll read from. Then I looked, and I heard the sound of a vast number of angels. Thousands and thousands, millions and millions, they were all around the throne the living beings and the elders, and they shouted out, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth, on the sea, everything in them, saying, To the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb belong praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. The four living beings said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Verses 11 and 12 form the second hymn. But this time, instead of only the 24 elders at God's throne singing to the Lord, they are joined by millions upon millions of angels who agree with God that the Lamb is worthy of receiving power, riches, glory, honor, and praise. Now please note, God's very existence as God makes Him worthy of possessing all of these things because He is the creator of everything. But the Lamb only receives these things from the one who by nature possesses them. And so the right to give them to whomever He chooses belongs to that one sitting on the throne. God. Next in the verse in, in verse 13, the third hymn is sung. And in addition to the 24 elders and the millions of angels, every living creature that God has ever created, those unspecified spirit beings in heaven, those unspecified physical beings on the surface of the earth and under it, that means the dead, and those in the sea, 
they all add their voices to the chorus. So what we see is that with each successive hymn, a larger and larger number of creatures join in the praise of the Lamb, so that everything that lives in heaven and on earth acknowledges the Lordship of Christ. And then finally, to end the series of praise songs to the Lord Yeshua, the four living beings shout, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fall on their faces in worship to him. Thus all creatures, living and dead, spiritual and physical, great and small, they agree and acknowledge the magnitude of what has just happened and their allegiance to the Son of God. I cannot even imagine the emotions of awe that John must have been experiencing as this scene unfolded in his vision. Okay, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is still on page 1538-1538. Next I watched as the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living beings say in a thundering voice, Go! And I looked, and there in front of me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode off as a conqueror to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Go! Another horse went out, a red one, and its rider was given the power to take peace away from the earth and to make people slaughter each other. He was given a great sword. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Go! And I looked, and there in front of me was a black horse, and its rider held in his hand a pair of scales. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living beings say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for the same price, but don't damage the oil or the wine. When he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living being say, Go! And I looked, and there in front of me was a pallid, sickly-looking horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Sheol followed behind him. They were given authority to kill one quarter of the world by war, by famine, by plagues, and with the wild animals of the earth. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. And they cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign Ruler HaKodesh, the Holy One, the True One, how long will it be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants should be reached, of their brothers who would be killed, just as they had been. Then I watched as he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black as sackcloth worn in the morning, worn in mourning, and the full moon became blood red. The stars fell from heaven to earth, just as a fig tree drops its figs when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain island was moved from its place. Then the earth's kings, the rulers, the generals, the rich and the mighty, indeed everyone, slave and free, hid himself in caves and among the rocks in the mountains. 
And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one sitting on the throne and from the fury of the Lamb. For the great day of their fury has come, and who can stand? Now from here on, what we're going to read takes place in the physical realm on earth. And, and what we are reading about is often called the day of the Lord, or judgment day. That is, it's when God begins in earnest to carry out his judgment on earth and its inhabitants. And his judgment is, the world deserves his wrath. So in verse 1, <clears throat> the lamb that was slain but is now alive breaks open the first of the seven seals. Now I want to pause here to say that especially at this point this is when there's so much varying and opposing Christian doctrines on the end times that plays a significant role in how one interprets the staggering, often confusing events depicted in the book of Revelation. Even the naming convention that the various doctrines employ to explain, define their beliefs play a role. For instance, especially pre-tribulation dispensationalists, perhaps representing the largest segment of mainstream Protestant Christianity, interprets the timing of these events in terms of three earth-shattering phenomena called the rapture, the tribulation, and the great tribulation. Now, setting aside discussion of the rapture for now, their end times doctrine revolves around the existence of two named time periods that can be identified and put on a timeline. One is called the tribulation, the other is called the great tribulation. Now, the tribulation is the name of a specific period of trauma on earth that extends for precisely seven years. The Great Tribulation is the name of another period of trauma even greater than the first that essentially marks the second half, the midpoint, of the seven years of the Tribulation. However, the only way one can establish the actual existence of these two named events is by adding a key word to the scriptures that is not there in the oldest texts of the New Testament that we have, those that are written in Greek. The word is ton in Greek, ton, T-O-N, which directly translates to the in English, T-H-E, the. In other words, while Revelation indeed speaks of times of tribulation and great tribulation, it never speaks of the tribulation or the great tribulation except in one instance, and we'll discuss that thoroughly when we get there. This is not just semantics. By turning the biblical term philipsis, tribulation, into a proper noun, by putting the word the before it, and then attaching it to the so-called 70th week of Daniel, a quite detailed map of the end times is created. Now, even though Revelation tells us that when the end times arrive, there will be troubles for mankind that increase into even greater troubles, in other words, tribulation increases and becomes greater tribulation, Revelation does not speak of them as identifiable named events. 
Now, those who adhere to the pre-tribulation doctrine also claim that before the opening of the first seal by Christ, the church has already been raptured. So according to this doctrine, believers are already gone from the earth and living in heaven before the beginning of the events of Revelation chapter 6. Now while I'll speak more on this in later lessons, I think it's only proper that I should tell you where I come down on this, while acknowledging that in no way do I claim that my thoughts on this matter are infallible. I believe that by the end of chapter 6, all believers will have experienced the rapture and that whatever believers remain on earth can only be those who have accepted Christ since the moment the rapture occurred. And probably many are now believers because they witnessed the rapture personally. Now that said, I do not agree with the typical pre-tribulation timeline that does two things. First of all, it calls the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments the time of tribulation. That is, the 21 judgments that God hurls upon the earth and its inhabitants beginning with the seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6. And second, that God therefore lifts all believers to a safe place by means of an event called the rapture to avoid a period of particularly difficult tribulation. Now, I want to be clear. I do not see these 21 judgments as a period of time called the tribulation. Rather, I call these 21 judgments that begin um, in earnest at the end of chapter 6, mostly as the time of God's wrath. So I see them as quite separate and fundamentally different from a period of tribulation from the period of tribulation that is represented by the first four seals God's wrath seems to consist of 17 of the 21 named supernaturally caused events heaped upon mankind in the earth starting in chapter 6 with the breaking of the seven seals now tribulation perhaps including great tribulation is not necessarily supernaturally sent by God in the sense that is that is typical of what we think of it. Rather, it is brought about by mankind's own evil inclination run wild, now, no doubt satanically provoked. An example of this would be Hitler's genocide against the Jews. As horrible as this was, it was not a supernatural act of God. It was not God's wrath, but it sure was tribulation. It was a nearly unparalleled act of evil inspired by one of the most wicked human beings the world has ever known. Thus, while I see believers being removed from harm's way prior to God raining down supernatural catastrophe from heaven, I don't see believers being delivered from oppression and tribulation that has always bedeviled mankind. That is the suffering caused by the evil of human against human. The biblical pattern has always been that God's worshippers will suffer through persecution and tribulation as perhaps the greatest opportunities to witness to his glory, to his salvation. But what God does not do, he does not pour out his supernatural wrath indiscriminately upon both the guilty and those he has declared innocent. In Noah's day, God made provision 
for the final eight faithful God worshippers on earth before he purified the world through a destructive flood by having them build an ark and board it before the rains came. In Abraham's day, God removed every remaining God worshipper from Sodom before he devastated the city with supernatural fire. In Moses' day, the Lord protected the Israelites in Egypt from the ravages of the ten supernatural plagues he sent to Egypt to force Pharaoh to let his people go. However, in every case, God's people suffered under the evil of other humans. So I see the end times rapture in that same light. As believers, we will not suffer God's wrath, if defined as the 21 or perhaps 17 judgments we're about to study. But we will suffer through many terrible humanly inspired evils, such as war and genocide, perhaps including the ruination of our precious environment that has provided a safe home for all of us for millennia. I label these humanly inspired evils as tribulation, and at some point even great tribulation, something that we are warned is coming. Now, why would believers be warned that tribulation is coming, and that we must overcome, and we must stay faithful until death, if we're not going to be around to suffer it? Pre-tribulation doctrine adherents say, that this is only speaking about those who become believers after the rapture happens. Well, perhaps. I mean, I can't completely discount that as a possibility, but that would be out of character for Scripture and for prophecy in general. Well, back to verse 1. First, let me say, a reasonable case can be made that the four horses of the differing colors being set out do not represent God's wrath, but rather is satanic wrath, causing human evil to greatly increase. In fact, I lean that direction. Now, it's undeniable that such is a possible understanding that we have to keep in mind. Now, upon the first seal being broken, one of the four living beings surrounding God's throne announces with a loud voice, Go! Now this command to go brought forth a white horse and a rider who carried a bow. He wore a crown, and together the horse and the rider went out conquering. Now following this, three more horses with riders will be sent out, each one ordered in turn by one of the four living beings. These four horses and riders are known in literary and artistic circles as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Quite interestingly, the Bible scholar world is fairly equally divided on whether or not the rider on the white horse is to be identified as Christ or as the Antichrist. Now, this was not always the case. In my research into what the early church fathers thought about this, to a man they believed the white horse to be the gospel and the rider to be Jesus. As for the other three horses and riders, most of the early church fathers saw them as sowers of evil and hardship, a harbinger of the coming of God's harsh hand of punishment and judgment. Now, good cases can be made for both sides of the debate. However, for me, 
the weight of evidence leans more strongly in one direction. Since John's visions are invariably about fulfilling the many Old Testament prophecies about the end times and day of the Lord, then it is within the context of those prophecies that we should look for understanding. If the tone and the context of those prophecies is entirely different than what we find in John's vision, then we have God using allegory to get his message across to John, something which I just cannot accept. So in search of the most direct reference among the prophets to the going out of four horses to wreak havoc on humanity, Bible scholars generally agree it must be Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8, we read this. Again I raised my eyes, and I saw in front of me four chariots coming out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, fourth chariot spotted gray horses. I asked the angel speaking with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered me, These are the four winds of the sky that go out after presenting themselves before the Lord of the land. The one with the black horses is going out towards the land in the north. The white horses have gone out after them, and the spotted have gone out towards the land in the south. And then the gray ones went out and were seeking to go and wander throughout the whole earth when he said, Wander throughout the whole earth. And they did wander throughout the whole earth. And then he called out to me and said, Look, the ones going to the land in the north have given my spirit rest in the north country. Well, in Zechariah, God bids four horses of almost, actually teams of horses, almost of almost identical described colors as those John describes in Revelation to go out, to patrol the earth, to punish those nations who have oppressed his people Israel. Now, these horses in Zechariah are pulling chariots, which means they are for war. One thing that I think helps to even better connect this Zechariah passage with Revelation chapter 6 is that in Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah asks about who the horses and chariots are, and he receives an answer. However, I think the complete Jewish Bible translation unnecessarily muddies the waters by coming up with a decidedly different interpretation than practically all other reliable Bible translations. The complete Jewish Bible says that the angel answers Zechariah that the four horses are the four winds in the sky. However, almost all other Bible versions say that the angel answers that the four horses are the four spirits of heaven. Now, the Hebrew word that's being translated as wind in the complete Jewish Bible is ruach. Understand, while the New Testament is written down in, in, in Greek, in, in Greek, all right, here in Zechariah we're reading in Hebrew. All right, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and ruach can indeed mean wind, but more commonly it means spirit. The Hebrew word that is being translated as sky by the complete Jewish Bible is shamayim, and shamayim can mean sky, 
but more commonly it means heaven. The context helps to determine which way to take the meaning of these two words. So considering that these four horses are sent out after standing before the Lord in heaven, and that they are, of course, symbolic and spiritual in nature, I mean, they're not actual horses, I agree with the bulk of translations that say that these horses represent something called the four spirits of heaven. And that fits nicely with the four horses of Revelation chapter 6. In both Revelation 6 and Zechariah 6, the four horses are dealt with as a group, having a common purpose. That purpose is to create havoc and death on earth. Now it is true that in the Bible, white usually signifies purity. Further, the writer is said to be wearing a crown, and together, you know, these two characteristics sound pretty Christ-like. However, the black, red, and grayish-green or spotted horses are sent out to do evil things that cause terrible woes. So it's difficult to find a good cause to separate the white horse out from the group and have its symbolism interpreted as indicating good when the symbolism of the other three is seen as that of evil. Well, the issue of the crown is also a challenging one, as Christ is said to be king in in Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament. But the word used in this verse for the crown upon the rider of the white horse is Stephanos. Stephanos. And it is used in reference to the laurel wreath given to victors in athletic competition. But a crown for a king in Greek is typically diadema, where we get the word diadem from. Now we also have the rider of the white horse using a bow, which is a weapon of war. In Israel, horses were not used for transportation. They were used for chariots or to be ridden by soldiers. So symbolically, these horses are war horses. And then we have the matter of how the scene in heaven unfolds. If we take the rider of the white horse to be Christ, then we have Christ opening the first seal of the scroll with the result that one of the four living beings then orders him to mount a white horse, take a bow in his hand, and go create war and chaos on earth. So with all of these considerations, it seems more likely than not, to me, that the white horse and its rider are satanic in nature. That is, this is symbolic of the Antichrist. And the reason that we find so many characteristics that one could easily see is Christ-like is because the Antichrist tries to achieve his victory through deception. After all, much of the world is going to think that the Antichrist is the Messiah before he's found out and discovered. So to help us sort this out, Charles Lee Feinberg makes the salient point that we should not be so much concerned with the individuals on the horses, but rather with the purpose of the horse and rider together and the four horses and riders as a group. Thus we should probably not make the unwarranted assumption that the white horse is being sent out for an entirely opposite purpose of the other three horses, because otherwise we have the first one more or less counteracting the purpose of the other three. 
So whether or not the white horse and its rider is meant to symbolize the Antichrist specifically, or just as an inciter of war and violence in general, I do think the purpose is evil. Now, if you are paying close attention to what I've been saying, then an obvious question has to be, would our God actually order evil to be sent upon the world, especially since the four horsemen of the apocalypse seem to be going out from heaven? Now this presents a theological challenge of some proportions, because it's common in Christianity to declare that the Lord only deals in good, and it's against his nature to deal in evil. However, the Holy Scriptures tell us something a little different. In Isaiah 45.7 we read, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create woe. I, Adonai, do all these things. Now, if we read that from the complete Jewish Bible, if we read that in the King James Version, it puts it slightly differently. I form the light, and I create darkness. I make peace, and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, the word the complete Jewish Bible translates as woe, the King James Version translates as evil, and that word is ra. R-A-H, raw. Both English translations are correct. They really mean about the same thing. Woe is usually the result of evil. And when we understand this, and understand that with the 21 judgments of Revelation, God is indeed sending 21 woes to the world, to say he is sending evil is merely semantics. So yes, God does send evil things to the world in order to bring about his will, and to execute his judgment upon humans, and at times he sends it also to test the faith of his worshippers. Therefore it makes sense that the white horse and its rider are being sent to cause the specter of evil to erupt globally. Then in verse 3, the second seal is broken, and a second horse, a red one, is set out with its rider holding a great sword. Red is usually the biblical symbol for blood. And as with so many biblical symbols, blood can be used for good or for evil. So blood can be a symbol of life, an atonement for redemption, or it can be a symbol of murder and destruction. This duo's mission was to remove peace from the world and to promote Men killing men on a massive scale. Now, while this can be taken primarily to speak of nation against nation, it can also speak to all modes of humans intentionally, unjustly, and maliciously flaunting God's laws by killing humans by means of government oppression, criminal activity, terrorism, you know, and even abortion. Well, in verse 5, The third seal is broken, and the third of the four living beings calls forth a black horse, bearing a rider carrying a balanced scale. Now notice how there are four living beings and four horses, and each living being calls forth a specific horse and rider as though there is some association or connection between them. Now we aren't given enough information to know for certain what that connection might be. 
However, remember that Zechariah 6 says that the four horses were the four spirits of heaven. And the four unique and powerful living beings are also four spirits in heaven. So this may well be the connection. But that's my own, only my personal speculation. Now the scale symbolizes commerce as its purpose is to measure money, to measure commodities. In this case, it's to weigh out scarce food. Thus, the famine is, a famine is being sent upon the world by God. No doubt caused in large part by, by the war and strife instigated by the first two horses and their riders so that fields can't be planted and, and crops harvested. And as the scarcity sets in, the expense of food rises to more than an average person can pay. You know, in the ancient world, a denarius was the wage a man would earn for a day's labor. A quart of wheat costing a denarius, or three quarts of barley for the same, is about ten times the normal cost. Here it is meant as a metaphor, indicating that everything a man could earn in a day would be needed to buy good quality food sufficient for only one day for one person, or, in regards to the barley, a less desirable food sufficient for three persons for one day. Yet, the oil and the wine were not to be harmed. This means the well-off could continue to enjoy the finer things of life, oil and wine, even as the poor struggled for just basic survival. You know, what might be the result one would expect from this situation. How about civil strife and class warfare on a global scale? As the poor rebel in fury and desperation against the rich and against the ruling elite, you know, who always seem insulated from the troubles that affect everybody else. Well, in verse 7, the Lamb breaks the fourth seal. In response, the fourth horseman is sent out by the fourth living being. The fourth horse is variously described as pale, ashen, and pallid, often equated with dappled, greenish, grayish, even an off-white. Now, the Greek word that's being translated is chloros. Chloros. Literally, it means the light green color of plants. But it's also used to describe the color of a person who is, is very ill. Point being, the horse looks sickly because it represents pestilence and disease. Now, interestingly, the final horse and its rider are given a name, Death and Hades. Now, we need to grasp that Hades was the imagined underworld of the Greeks, along with all of its mythology. The idea that it is trying to convey is, of course, a Hebrew one. And so a better translation of this would be Death and and Sheol, since Sheol is the place of the dead that we read of in the Bible and that John would have been familiar with since he was a Jew. The four horsemen bring death through one means or another to the inhabitants of the earth. Now I want to state at this point that my best understanding of Revelation is that this will occur shortly before the rapture of believers. If I'm correct, then recipients of the woes and evil 
that the four horsemen of the apocalypse bring is upon upon non-believers and believers. You know, it's always important that death is seen by believers as outside the perfect will of God, and generally speaking is satanic in origin. Now this is not to say that Yehovah doesn't use death for his purposes, just as he can turn many things intended for evil into a greater good. Our God is not a God of death. He's a God of life. Now I can't bypass this without mentioning that any religion that glorifies death of life or killing as a good, even joyful thing is worthy only of scorn, for it's not of God. Rather, such a religion has the devil as its father. You know, it's no coincidence that in the 6th century, as Christianity was overtaking the world by the preaching of Messiah's message of love and peace and restoration, that Satan would rise in opposition by creating its opposite, Islam, which preaches hate, war, death, and subjugation. And today, as believers, we cannot be deceived into following the modern virtue of tolerance to find a way to give any credence or respect or validity whatsoever to this pagan religion, nor to somehow equate the God of Islam with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I cannot know for sure, but unless there is a significant change on earth, when the four horsemen of the apocalypse finally begin to ravage humanity, one of their primary weapons may well be Islamic terrorism and the Muslim hope to rule the planet. Well, even so, death is not our eternal nemesis. Because when the Lord finally defeats Satan, which in, in the largest sense is what the book of Revelation is about, he also defeats death. In fact, eventually, God gets rid of death and the grave entirely. Now we read this in Revelation chapter 20 as the redemptive work of God nears its completion. It is one of the greatest statements of hope in the entire word of God for those who trust Yeshua, and it's one of the greatest warnings for those who reject him. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, we read this. Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. And they were judged, each according to what he had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. Well, the final verse, final half of verse 8 says that they were given authority to kill one quarter of the world by war, by famine, by plagues, and with the wild animals of the earth. The they is the four horsemen. So the four horsemen were sent out together to work together as a team. They each served a role to punish the earth's inhabitants. 
Now Satan thought, thought that this indicated he was winning. God was going to use it to bring about a nearly unimaginable level of redemption and restoration. We will continue with chapter 6 next week.